You're listening to the Food for All podcast, where we harvest wisdom that inspires and empowers changemakers to strengthen food systems. I'm your host, Katie McCleary, and I'm searching for best practices from real people who work together to improve food access, production, and education in South Sacramento neighborhoods. In each episode, we'll explore a different project from the Healthy Food for All Collaborative Partners and explore its evolution, impact, and outcomes over a 10-year period, which was funded by the California Endowment. I'm so excited to talk to Amber Stott today. She is the founder and executive director of the Food Literacy Center. Hi, Amber. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. So Amber, tell me a little bit about the mission of the Food Literacy Center and what you do. Yeah, our mission is to inspire kids to eat their vegetables. And we do that by going into Title I elementary schools and teaching cooking and nutrition to elementary age kids during after school programs. Excellent. And so you're based in Sacramento County. How many schools do you regularly work with or how many number of kids? At Food Literacy Center, we are in at least eight schools a year, and we reach an average of 100 kids per school. So in an average school year, we're reaching 800 kids. That's a good chunk of kids to reach an impact to get them to be eating healthier and embrace their food choices that are plentiful in California. Absolutely. And it's really critical because in Sacramento alone, we have a 40% childhood obesity rate. One in three kids has type 2 diabetes. These are all diseases that are preventable if we eat our vegetables. And as we know, they do grow plentifully here in the Sacramento Farm to Fork capital. But of course, access to those amazing fruits and vegetables can be a challenge. So you're telling me that kids actually want to eat vegetables? Heck yeah, they love them. We get our kids to fall in love with vegetables real quick. Uh, We have a tried and true methodology, a proprietary set of broccoli boundaries and radish routines that we use in the classroom to create a healthy environment where kids get excited and change their attitude. That's the key to getting them to change. And then ultimately their behavior. And kids actually tell us that their favorite part of food literacy class is tasting new fruits and vegetables. Food Literacy Center is part of the Healthy Food for All Collaborative. And what does this collaborative do and who are the partners? Sure. So uh, we're almost a decade in now, and we're extremely grateful that it all began with funding from the California Endowment. And they had decided that they were going to zero in their efforts in specific zip codes in South Sacramento, and then encourage nonprofits to layer their services and partner and collaborate in new and creative ways that had not been happening before. So all of this was taking place simultaneous to a local food movement that was burgeoning. The way the food movement collaborates is unlike any other nonprofit sector. And it's been a phenomenal experience to watch as this funder sort of encouraged us to go to meetings together on a regular basis. And as we came to the table and we discovered what one another were doing, like I remember I was first starting Food Literacy Center at the time and the food bank was attending these meetings and they said, where are you getting the food that you use in your programs? And I said, my savings account. (laughs) And they were like, well, we could give you food. And I was like, really? So it it was something that happened organically out of the endowment, encouraging us to talk to one another and learn more about one another. 
So that's a really nice sort of petri dish for, I think, setting up why the Feast Project, which is what we're going to talk about, was just so impactful and created all these different changes at different levels, but really resulted in systems change. How did you come up with the idea for FEAST and what does it stand for? FEAST stands for Food Exploration and School Transformation. Tell me about the joys and the outcomes that happen at a FEAST school. Yeah, so Feliciana comes to school with her mother and she gets dropped off, but her mom stays and she participates in a health education council coffee talk where she learns about nutrition. They might even do a Zumba class or go for a walk, uh, depending on the school. And meanwhile, Valenciana heads off to maybe her science class where her science teacher brings her into the school garden. And that day they may be harvesting snap peas and she gets to taste her very first snap pea that she's ever grown. And she's really excited and proud of that. And she realizes that they're sweet and crunchy. And then a couple of hours later, she goes to school lunch and she sees snap peas on the salad bar. And her friend who isn't in her science class and didn't get to go to the school garden doesn't know what a snap pea is. And Valenciana says, oh my gosh, those are snap peas. We grow them in the school garden. You're really gonna like them. I like them. And so Valenciana and her friend put those on their school lunch tray and they get consumed. Then school ends and Valenciana heads over to her after-school program with Food Literacy Center where she participates in a cooking class and the recipe that they're making that day is a stir-fry using snap peas. And she gets to experience a warm snap pea that's been cooked with other foods like rice. And she gets to go home with that recipe and say, mom, I learned about snap peas today. Can we please make this recipe? And that's just one day for someone like Feliciana. And we're reaching through our program over 3,300 kids in the school district. Wow, that's so amazing. It really does feel like farm to school, but to home too, right? Because that mother is going to be more willing to try that recipe because she was at health class and also was sort of brought into why it's important and matters. These parents, um, they have to tell their kids no a lot because they don't have a lot of money. And when a kid comes home and says, can we buy snap peas? That's a pretty low cost way to be able to say yes, because it's not new tennis shoes. It's not electronic gear. And so we find that more often than not, our parents are excited to have a small thing that they can say yes to their kids about that they also know is going to be a yes to the kids' health. That's so great. None of this stuff happened overnight. So, you know, 10 years ago, nonprofits started meeting on a monthly basis, learning about how each one of us was working, simultaneously perfecting our own programs, and then funding opportunities would appear. And so... This is kind of how Feast began. So Valley Vision was also an instrumental nonprofit at the time because they had started running. So there was the HVAC coalition that was meeting monthly, but then other pieces of coalition started to form as we realized that collectively there were nonprofits among us that weren't just working on food access, but there were a a bunch of us that were also working on improving school food. 
And so there was also another monthly group that started working to improve school food. And so we were meeting and we were tackling things like at the time the school district was beginning to implement salad bars across the district and across the state. And, you know, we were also just opening the doors to to get schools to invite programs like food literacy. Our program is free. So, but yet there were schools that weren't sure in the beginning if they wanted a food literacy program, right? Because if an adult doesn't eat their vegetables, why are they going to invite other adults to come in and teach their kids to eat their vegetables? So we were trying to get schools to think about the health of their students and what they were eating and care more and do more. So 10 years ago, we were just starting and there were these things that started to come out of USDA because of Michelle Obama and her amazing work called Farm to School Grants. And they were pretty big grants and they were only available to school districts to encourage school districts to begin purchasing more food from local farms. And so at the time, Saxony Unified was purchasing from about eight local farms. And they there was interest within the school district, within the nutrition services department. They're the folks who run school lunch to get one of these grants. But they said, you know what? We don't actually need the money for nutrition services to buy more local food. What we want is we want to overlay our program with what Soilborn Farms is doing with school gardens and what Food Literacy Center is doing with nutrition and cooking education because they saw a correlation between what they put on the salad bars and the level of kids' food literacy and whether kids would actually eat what they put on the salad bar. No school lunch program wants to be spending money on vegetables and watching them go into the trash at the end of lunch hour. So they actually wanted our programs, if they were going to spend the money, the higher price on this beautiful local produce, they wanted to make sure that kids were actually going to consume it. So through Valley Vision, finding out about this grant, they sort of put us all in a room together because we were all individually working on these issues. And they said, what do you guys think? Would this be an interesting grant? Do you want to go after it? And this is where feasts began, is with that first funding. And those were pretty significant grants for a small nonprofit at the time. I was just going to ask you how much were the range of the grants, because that feels like a substantial lift. And not to mention, many of these organizations are new, like they're just getting up and running. So often funders don't want to give substantial grants out to newbie organizations, but you kind of already had a proof of concept going. So... How much did they award you, or can you tell me a range? Both Soilborn and Food Literacy Center were getting around $40,000 a year, and it was a two-and-a-half-year grant. So number one, that was probably our first multi-year grant other than endowment, and it was definitely one of our biggest grants at the time. So it was substantial, and it helped a lot, and it also... It afforded us the opportunity to work more directly with the school lunch program and to just learn about one another. When you started Food Literacy Center, did you have a relationship with Soilborn Farms or with Sean Harrison? Nope. I had only ever worked in social service nonprofits in the Sacramento region. So all of the food system and food movement partners were very new. I had a food blog at the time and was a food writer for several publications locally. So I had, you know, like chef and restaurant and farm contacts, but 
not any on the nonprofit side. And so that was all very new. And most of the people working in these um, food-based nonprofits also came from some other random world. Did you guys co-write this grant with Valley Vision and the school district as partners all together? Yeah, so the school district wrote the grant because school districts have to receive these these farm to school USDA grants. And they asked in those grants for a sustainability plan. So at the end of that funding, how is that, how are you going to keep this project going? And so we wrote into Food Literacy Center's plan that we would showcase what we were doing to funders in the hopes of trying to find additional funding to sustain the program once it ends. Because these USDA grants, they fund you once for two and a half years and then never again. They don't renew ever. And so that's problematic in itself, right? So while this was happening, Dignity Health had started rolling out their collaborative grant because they had new staff and they were retooling how they funded nonprofits. And at the time, they were beginning to form this funding stream where you would have to be part of a nonprofit coalition of at least three nonprofits in order to even apply for their funding. So when we got introduced to them and learned about that, I really started laying the foundation for possible future funding for the FEAST program that, so that we could sustain it. But, but initially it was Nutrition Services at Sac City Unified saying, hey, we're going to apply for this grant. We're going to pass those funds through. They kept, you know, a small amount for their administration, but they largely gave it to Soilborn and Food Literacy Center. And so we, of course, don't simultaneously link our programs. Like that was a, a tricky thing to work out because Food Literacy Center was up and running and doing really well on its own. Soilborn was up and running and doing really well on its own. And so the the way of thinking that we had to put on was we're not merging our nonprofits. We're not merging our programs. We're looking at our programs through the lens of those we serve. And so if I'm a kid in a school, I now have access to this balloon of services that will engulf me in my school environment. I will go to school lunch and I will see beautiful, healthy produce on the salad bar. And I will recognize that produce because I've seen it in my after-school program where I've tasted it and I've cooked with it. I've seen it in my school garden where I planted it and I've harvested it and I've tasted it and I've learned about it. And so we really had to sync up in a way that was through the eyes of a student more so than we're really smart nonprofits. How do we overlap our program, if that makes sense? And that I think is the beauty of this in terms of thinking about a systems change, because ultimately what we're doing at each of these individual schools is we're really changing school culture, right? Because when the principal gets excited to have these kinds of programs within their school walls, then the principal gets buy-in and they invite their teachers and their staff to support the program. And then suddenly the kids are being encouraged to participate in these programs. And, and you'll see this change of a kid who, you know, maybe when we started the program and they were in second grade and they had a really negative attitude toward fruits and vegetables, by the time they're in fifth grade, they're so excited to taste and try anything. And the new kindergartners who come up under them have no qualms whatsoever about tasting a new fruit or vegetable because the culture is in the school already. And the fifth graders think it's the coolest thing ever. So 
it's almost like the kindergartners don't even start off with those negative attitudes that we might have seen in a new school. So that's sort of the progress that we were able to begin building in the first two and a half years when we had that USDA farm to school grant. And then as Dignity Health came in, they wanted three nonprofit partners. We had two plus the school district. So we said, okay, what is the missing piece of the puzzle here for our kids? And we realized that parent involvement was a piece that we would like to, to layer in. And so we reached out to Health Education Council and they at the time were also trying to get their foot in the door at Saxon Unified. So they joined our collaborative and they essentially work with parents to teach them about nutrition and talk to them about what their kids are learning in our programs so that we have this really nice full circle experience for our kids that, you know, in, during their school day, they're supported during after school, they're supported. And when they go home, hopefully their parents also have received some nutrition education. And so they're supported even further. I love this approach that you took in terms of focusing around the student that sort of echoes human centered design, right? Like how am I solving the problem for the experience of that user? And that is the kid. And so instead of thinking like, well, this is the strength of food literacy center, and this is the strength of soil born, and how do we mesh them together? So what sort of tangible things did you do to begin to collaborate together? Like, did you offer something to Soilborn staff and then they offered something to you? Did they have to take something off their plate that maybe they were doing like tastings and cooking classes? Or how do you sort of bifurcate those duties or roles? We don't. If Soilborn decides they want to do a cooking class during a garden program, Great. The more, the merrier. We're all doing tastings because you can't do enough of it. The main thing that we chose to do is something called veggie of the month, where every single month we would agree on a single vegetable. And then nutrition services would spend their money with local farms to make sure that, say, carrots were on the salad bar. And then uh, soil born would either be harvesting those or tasting those or planting those in the school garden. And then Food Literacy Center would be tasting those and cooking those because it can take kids 10 to 15 tastes of a vegetable before they decide that they like it. So we don't mind if they are seeing that 20 times in a month. In fact, it's better if they are because it's a repeatable tasting process that can become a habit. So the more the merrier. And we don't really have any direction on one another's programs other than one vegetable. But it's amazing how just in our conversations and our phone calls with one another to check in and say, you know, how are things going and what's the vegetable going to be the next two months? The little things that will come up of, well, you know, we're really having a problem with reaching parents at XYZ school. And then one of us will say, oh my gosh, I just had a conversation with a school nurse. And she was saying that she's going to be having a parent breakfast. And what if all three of our programs plugged into that parent breakfast? Maybe we could get more parents for health education council's program. And so these little organic conversations around carrots end up helping us come up with new solutions that improve all of our programs. So it's it's really about that regular communication and simply being in the same spaces because we can just overlay our universes in really meaningful ways that end up benefiting the kids and the families that we serve. It feels to me that collaboration fails when people only meet once a month. 
or when people only meet every two to three months and then it's like they have to recalibrate to what was the last meeting about. So what does ongoing communication look like to you? Is it a meeting? Is it just picking up the phone? Are you guys texting? What's what is the communication? It depends. Like sometimes it's more structured than others. And we have other structured places where we do regularly meet. So like the HVAC meetings. What do you see as some of the positive things that are happening now that it has been in place for a couple of years? Sure. That original coalition of people working in school uh, food has now morphed into a school wellness policy committee. And so separate from our feast grants, because all of us are at all of these other tables, we end up working cross collaboratively on stuff that's not even funded in any of these grants that we're just doing because we're in a school and this stuff matters to us. So for example, the school wellness policy was a requirement by the federal government if you have a federal school meal program, again, something that Michelle Obama set up to ensure the sort of longevity of her programs because she knew she wasn't going to be there forever. And the smart thing that she did was she built in a requirement that at the local level, at the school district level, by a certain year, and I can't remember what it was off the top of my head anymore, it might have been 2018, that all of us would, at the school district level, create a school wellness policy. And so all of us, so Soil Born, Food Literacy Center, Health Education Council, Valley Vision, Nutrition Services, other nonprofits from the community, other teachers, other people who care, parents, we're coming to these regular monthly meetings and we actually strengthened our local school wellness policy so that it's even stronger than what the state or the feds even require. And so that's a layer of protection to help you know, stabilize our programs and protect our kids and, and also to build in, okay, we know that there are food literacy programs happening. We know that there are school garden programs happening. And in those policies, as a district, we're saying we value those and we want to see those continue. It doesn't come with funding or anything like that. It's just a commitment on the, on the level of the school board to say, we've seen a change in our kids and their health and what they eat. And we want to continue to see that happening in our schools. It's so funny because this word that keeps coming to me, but also that you keep saying is values. That this is this is a collaborative commitment beyond money, beyond grant funding, all of that stuff that that really it's about the alignment of your values and your mission and that you sort of all walk the walk and talk the talk. And Absolutely. I think that's amazing. And then to have you know, the federal level, the state level, and then your local school level saying like, okay, well, these are values that while they are being, you know, kind of coming down from the government, the heart is all in the right place. And so we're going to really wrap around it and ensure that in layering of those services, we do the right thing by kids, but we also do the right thing by policies that we know create systems change that can go across the nation like a wildfire once we have proof of concept and the outcomes. So Absolutely. I, and those... The, the changes that we have seen at our school in the school district have been paramount to the success of our program. So just as one example, Pacific Elementary, when we were a couple years into our program, through the HVAC coalition, we had identified Pacific Elementary as a hub for our local communities, and many of us were providing services at that school. So we wanted to ensure that Pacific remained a key school where we would 
have programs like Feast and others. And the principal left the school, who was the original principal that kind of said yes to all these programs. And so as a coalition through the HVAC, we got together and we said, what can we do to ensure that our next school principal cares about this stuff. So talking about your values, right? And so we went to the school board and we said, can we give you a couple of questions that you ask in your hiring process? So when you go to hire this principal, they're having to demonstrate to you that they care about this stuff. But then also by you asking those questions in their interview, the school board is telling that future principal, these things matter to us as a school board. So it was just two simple questions that we emailed to a school board member. And the principal at Pacific Elementary remains one of our strongest allies. And we can call her up at the drop of a hat and say, hey, we have a crazy idea. We want to try a kid's farmer's market. And can we do it in two weeks? And she's always like, yeah, let's do it. So, you know, those values matter. And we also have, you know, a school superintendent who cares about this and values it. We have nutrition services staff who value the only reason these things are happening is because those people on a personal level are passionate about these issues. And you know, you could have one staff turnover and I think it could really rock our world and potentially turn it upside down. But that's why you also work on these things like the school wellness policy to ensure that you do have some backup documentation if, you know, in the hiring process, somebody forgets. <laughs> Thankfully at Sac City Unified, we've only seen an, an uphill progression in terms of the number of people and the level of commitment around healthy eating. So, That's but great. I, you know, heard horror stories from other districts for sure, where they lose a really great ally. Yeah. It feels like a magic formula, right? Like passionate person meets other passionate person, values aligned, embed those values in your policy at any yeah. way that you can do, right? So even having elected officials go out and say, Oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Like, that's now on record. Like, that's a values statement as well. I love that. My other question for you, because I think a lot of our listeners, right, if they wanted to start a feast type project, the buy-in, I hear you say that principals need buy-in. Who else needs buy-in to this, right? If you're going to try to change a school culture, open up school gardens, have cooking classes, I mean, like you're giving children knives to play with, which I think is amazing, but others <laughs> I could see wearing very litigious hats within a within a school district, right? I mean, there's all these levels to break through. It sounds great and easy, but I know it's not. My question to you is, who has to buy in to change a school culture? Kind of everyone. <laughs> um, and that's really difficult. It, it starts with that principle, though, because the principle can set the tone. Absolutely. And then what we've seen, especially through Soilborn's program, is that school teacher buy-in has increased and expanded. And so, you know, she may have started with three really engaged teachers and this past year, she said she couldn't keep up. I think there were something like 30 plus teachers in one school that wanted to implement school garden. And she was like, man, the school garden's only so big, right? So that's a great problem to have. And so as the culture of the school begins to change and it remains a priority and a value within that school, the entire school culture absolutely shifts. And, and we're in other schools where, for example, the after school program isn't super excited to have us there, right? <laughs> like we show up and they're like, oh, we forgot you were coming. We've got a talent show or, you know, 
those kinds of things. And there are some schools where we've quit going because we're like, this isn't a commitment for you. And so we're not going to waste our time. We're going to go to a school where it is a commitment because we're doing this for free and we have limited resources as it is. So let's find a school where we can really create that long-term change. So we've definitely had to give up on schools, even through the FEAST program, because you see a change in administration or a change in an after-school program. And, and certainly that happens. And so our, our strongest examples are those schools where we've been able to really see a sea change in the school culture, because it is critical. We even had at one school, the plant manager was not gonna let us into the kitchen, even though we had permits and stuff. And it's all it takes is one person who's not excited about kids eating healthy. So yeah, you've definitely run into that. But I would say our examples of the times where people are excited have certainly outweighed and outnumbered the schools where we get pushed back. So Amber, I know that there's a lot of layers to go through here, and there's has to be some real challenges that you've stumbled upon, you've had to address, and also naysayers, because I know that food can be political. So what do you do when you come up against those? And what were some of those challenges or naysayers? One of the challenges with that policy is that it's only as good as the people who follow it. So if we've kicked junk food out of the school day, and we've said, you know, school groups are no longer allowed to sell candy bars to elementary kids during the school day. But the principal turns a blind eye and still lets the, the baseball team sell candy bars. What good is the policy, right? And so pushing out information about this policy, informing people that, hey, your, your school district has changed. You can no longer do these things has, has been a struggle because the district is so large and making sure there is compliance. So one thing that we did collectively last year was we created a little video that we had the kids actually produce to talk about the school wellness policy and why it's important to them as students and asking the adults to please follow it. And then collectively, we all pushed that video out, you know, so various nonprofit partners to their various audiences, as well as through school principals and that kind of thing. And then collectively, that video had one survey where we could collect information, but ultimately one nonprofit was responsible for that. So there are certainly things that we can do jointly, but as far as tracking, we are each individually responsible. It's just a lot more efficient. Yeah, that's great. And I also think that while you're tracking individually, you're getting a diversity of data. Like I know that I saw within the project that Soilborn was able to record like 50% less food waste was happening on certain feast campuses as well. Yeah, there there've been naysayers the whole way and there will continue to be certainly. I guess the main thing is that at Food Literacy Center at least, I know my personal philosophy even just starting the nonprofit is that I don't listen to the no's. Uh, you have to tune them out because they will quickly consume and overwhelm you. And you instead have to focus on the yeses and the positives and put your energy into the things that are going well. And so sometimes it's a cut and run. Like we're in a school, the, the after school program or whatever partner is like not really prioritizing us. Great. We're, we're going to go to a school where they're more enthusiastic. So sometimes it's a matter of that. Other times, yeah, we're just going to fight that uphill battle every day because we know we've got enough people behind us that want to see this work. And, you know, whoever that person is that's saying no, 
I would say the best example of this is we're about to open a cooking school on an elementary school campus within the district. This is the biggest systems change that I personally have experienced in my nonprofit career. And we're so excited about it, but I'll guarantee you they didn't say yes to a cooking school from day one, <laughs> but you, you hold out, you stick to the vision and you continue to champion why that vision is so important. And you gather the people around you who say yes until the voices become louder and louder. And the one person sitting in the room at the end still saying no looks kind of like an old curmudgeon and eventually moves themselves along and gets on board with the yes train. So I would say, you know, having, having a group of amazing, enthusiastic feasts, nonprofit employees who are, you know, super nice people showing up with joy and smiles all the time, uh, like loving their broccoli. Uh, eventually you want to try that broccoli because it's just like, everybody's so excited about broccoli. Why? I got to figure this out. And then you taste the broccoli and like suddenly you're on the broccoli train too. So I would say that's the, the sort of most important thing about this work. And, you know, this last HVAC meeting, the last time we were all in person, was in, it was either December or January, and we were reflecting as a group on the fact that we had entered a new decade. And, you know, the calendar had turned to 2020, but also all of us have been doing this work for a decade now. And what I found very poignant as we went around the room and everybody had to share one word that sort of described how they were feeling going into the new decade. And to be very frank, there was a lot of exhaustion around the room, a lot of exhaustion from the leaders who are now many of us a decade older, you know, I've begun to see wrinkles, you know, and that means I'm physically getting more tired. The physical side of the work is not as easy as it was a decade ago. And those of us in those leadership positions are feeling the weight of continuing to show up with a smile and show up with their values and persist through the struggles. And it is so critical that we continue to, we have to stay in these leadership roles, whether we're tired or not, um, but we have to be able to bring leaders up behind us. It's going to be so critical for the succession of this critical work because we cannot lose the momentum that we have built. So I would say that is another piece that as we end a decade and go into a new one is going to be probably our most next pressing challenge. Yeah, succession is no joke in terms of keeping the work going forward, who's the keeper of the knowledge from the um, history, you know, and the lessons learned exactly. So I want to go a little bit into sort of that systems change. We know that the policy was sort of co-written, co-collaborated by a lot of people with a lot of input, because that's one way we get to keep it stick. How have things grown sort of beyond that? Like, is it now just like, oh, that policy is there and we follow it, but we still have to enforce it? But I mean, what does that look like now in terms of bigger systems change now that you've been through it for 10 years? Well, the policy is only a couple of years old. So the school wellness policy is just in its infancy. So we have 
probably a decade of work ahead of us to kick junk food out of the school day. There's still a lot of candy bar and cookie dough fundraisers. And so we've, we've got our work cut out for us. But as far as what is sticking is, you know, this, the school board members all invite us annually to give an update. How is the school wellness policy going? They care. They want to know. So there's there's still a ton of work ahead of us because it is such a new policy. So, you know, we now have a policy that asks people not to sell cookie dough and candy bars as their fundraisers, but how far we will come before they actually switch out those programs, you know, we, we've got our work cut out for us. So I'm sure that there's a lot of uphill work still to be done in order to have people accept it, to enforce it, and to continue changing that culture. I would say the most positive piece is the buy-in at the school board level. They invite us back on a regular annual basis. Uh, they want to know how it's going. They want updates. That's a really big piece of it because they help us ensure that it it remains a priority at the lower levels. And I think we're increasing teacher buy-in because they're ultimately the ones who are role modeling to our kids. So if they're drinking soda pop with their meal and if they're you know, eating lots of chips and they're throwing parties with cupcakes, even though they've been asked not to, that is where the work is going to be. But we do see that in these schools where we've been for a long time, we have more teacher buy-in. We have those role models modeling the healthy behaviors that we want to see. And ultimately, that means that the teachers are probably changing too. They're probably healthier. They're probably finding value. And we definitely see that happen where the after-school staff say that sit in on our after-school program. At the end of a semester, they might come to us and say, gosh, I've been trying your recipes at home and I never knew I liked broccoli before and now I love it. And so when the adults begin to change and they help us create that school culture, that's when we really see these things begin to stick. So Amber, now that you've done this amazing collaboration that's highly impactful in creating systems change, to the listeners out there who want to do collaboration and a layering of services like this to this degree and level, what are two or three key ingredients to doing this work? First, the will, right? You can run your nonprofit the way you've always run it and go solo toward your project goals and keep it uncomplicated. But I think when you keep it uncomplicated, you also keep it less rewarding and you can end up shortchanging your kids. Because for example, Health Education Council had already begun some work at Sac City Unified separate from Soilborn and Food Literacy Center. And why not, why not start talking to each other, introducing each other to the school nurse, the school principal, the whatever amazing teacher champion and help them improve their program because then it just improves things for your kids. And at some point too, once you've begun this work, like I remember early on health education council was like, Hey guys, we have extra money in our budget to buy weird random supplies. Like what kind of thing do we need that could be really cool to improve our program? And so they were able to buy like something as simple as sandwich boards that we were putting in the cafeteria. And every month when we change the vegetable of the month, 
the sandwich board changes and, and it'll have like a fun fact about cucumber or a fun fact about cilantro. And so you don't need those things to have a cool program, but they sure improve the quality of your program. So I think that is what you get out of putting in the extra effort. And then at some point it does, it isn't extra effort. It is, it's just becomes more seamless and more streamlined and just becomes part of the way that you do business. So, you know, it's initially confusing to try to figure out. And I think the simpler you make it and just knowing okay, we're, we're simultaneously going to have these experiences for those that we're serving with that lens of what is this like for the kid or whatever your client population is. Okay. So the two ingredients for collaboration. So I think one is like the will of the people that it's good okay. relationships that it might be complicated. And then whatever your second one is, which could be like managing expectations, having really clear roles and responsibilities, or I don't know. I think also like you want to go pitch a funder right? But you're also part of this collaborative. Do you go to the collaborative and be like, mm, like, should we pitch it like as a whole? Or should I go and just get my slice of the pie, which I'm sure you're not into. But do in, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. I would say another key to success is lose the scarcity mindset. And this is something you have to remind yourself of, especially in times of uh, recession or when you've had an off year fiscally for your nonprofit. There are so many of us, not just within the FEAST program, but within these, these various coalitions who will have conversations about, hey, did you see that Sprouts Market now is giving grants to this type of work in the Sacramento area. We've got a contact. You want us to make an introduction because if they're going to fund one program to do this type of work, it's part of their brand and their goal to fund multiple partners doing similar work. So we have found that our funders appreciate when we introduce them to another nonprofit that's doing work in the same space because it it makes the entire community richer and those funders want that and they're not going to shortchange you because they're now funding another nonprofit. Similarly, they're going to give you each a similar slice of the pie. So losing that scarcity mindset is, is also important because yeah, I just, the way things play out in real life is that by collaborating and partnering, it only does tend to make all of your programs better. Absolutely. So I always ask three questions at the end of the interview. So somebody not from Sacramento and maybe not from California of such a place of abundant produce and amazing deliciousness, they come to you and they say, hey, I want to take your model feast and I want to do it in my community. Are you a yay, nay, or hey? I'm a yay. In fact, I have gone around the state and trained other people in how they could begin to do this work collaboratively. So um, yeah, do it. We'll help. That's awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Well, here's my second question. So in doing this work, what did you overestimate or underestimate? I always overestimate that we will see things change quicker. <laughs> uh, that's the optimist that every nonprofit person has to be. Yeah. So the work takes forever and you just have to, you know, 
look at the baby step successes and take those wins where you can find them and focus on those because ultimately we do all want everyone to stop having candy bars and cookies in our school tomorrow, but it's going to take a little while. So we still live in America, right? <laughs> so, so that is one thing I just always overestimate, underestimate. It's okay if you don't have an answer for that one. I guess to, to play off of my answer about scarcity, I would say don't underestimate your funders <laughs> because they will come through if you maintain your relationships with them and and keep talking to them. You can keep your programs funded. Even when a USDA grant ends and you think your funding's going away, there's probably somebody out there who's interested in what you've done. I think so much of your whole interview is about the power of relationships. That, you know, constant communication, like being innovative, pushing yourself to go beyond and to have sort of complex conversations where you could keep it nice and easy and be in your silo and do your thing, but everything is so much richer and deeper and more impactful. So yeah, we can't definitely underestimate that. So lastly, you're the founder of Food Literacy Center. And like you said at the beginning of the interview that, you know, you've really created a language around this as well. So it's a concept, it's an idea that you've totally proven works and is needed. So I can't imagine that this is very meaningful for you, but can you tell me in your own words, what is the joy about this for you? Like, where is the meaning in it for you? What does it mean for you to do this work day in and day out when it's hard? The, the joy for me is knowing that we are setting up the next generation for a healthier, more delicious life because 40% childhood obesity one in three kids with type 2 diabetes, not okay. And as a society, we can't sustain that. I want Sacramento to be awesome 10, 20, 30 years from now. And this work isn't, isn't about us adults. It's about the next generation. And it's about making sure that they have the tools. And the thing is, you, you teach a kid about a carrot and they start to understand the system that is part of getting them that carrot and they're going to fight to protect a healthy food system as much as they're going to fight to protect their own health we work with kids who don't understand that type 2 diabetes isn't inherited isn't passed from generation to generation that in fact it is something that you as a child can protect and stop for yourself that's oftentimes new and mind-boggling information for these kids. They think if grandma and, and dad have it, they're gonna have it too. And so, you know, there's a revolution in a carrot and uh, that's why we're doing this work. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do and for helping us all love our fruits and vegetables more and raising that next generation to, to be healthier and smarter and to care about our environment and our soil and where our food comes from. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by the California Endowment and the Healthy Food for All Collaborative, which is a consortium of community members and organizations working together to improve food access, production, and education in South Sacramento. The Food for All podcast is co-created by the Healthy Food for All Collaborative Partners, 
in partnership with Sean Harrison of Soilborn Farms, Rangane Azimzade Tosang of Soul Resolutions International, and Alina Mehta of Grassroots Global. Our technical producer and advisor is Johnny Flores of Flores Podcast Consulting, and I'm your host, Katie McCleary of Paper Wings Creative. Thanks for listening.